this book follows the stories of four people. And for my mother, they were tyrants, or they were very difficult, or they were very unknown, or they were in some way um, cruel. And I wanted to see whether they really were and why these people did the things they did. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. It's the autumn of 1929 and a small child is kidnapped from Lincolnshire Beach. Five agonising days go by before she's found in a nearby village. The child remembers nothing of the events and nobody ever spoke about them ever again at home. It was only another 50 years before she even learned she was kidnapped. The girl grew up and became an artist and she had a daughter and the daughter was the art writer Laura Cumming. Laura is our guest on the podcast today. Laura grew up enthralled by her mother's strange tales of life at the seaside hamlet in the 1930s but so many puzzles remained unsolved. On Chapel Sands is her book. It's a book about mystery and memoir. It's got kind of two narratives running through it. Her mother's childhood tale and her own pursuit of truth. It's an incredible book and I was so excited to be able to sit down with Laura and ask her a little bit more about her writing process, what it's like trying to represent and record the past when you're so close to it and what art has meant to her in her life. Here's my chat with Laura. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the Vintage Podcast. Really excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and so you're, both of your parents um, were artists. Um, tell us a little bit about how art's played a uh, part in your life. The book is very much about this, actually. Mm. Um, I can't... This is very much the sort of conversation that teenagers have. You know, how do you think? What's your brain like? What are your cognitive functions? Do we think in words? Do we think in concepts and so on? And I suppose... That as far as I can remember, I've thought in pictures. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there are millions of people also think in pictures. And for me, sentences come, as it were, after pictures. So, And the first things that I can remember in my childhood are pictures. So my father sitting me when I was a tiny child, sitting me on his knee with his sketchbook just beyond me drawing over the top of my head in the sketchbook um so I think I've I think everything was pictured um and you know when when I was little my father was an abstract painter but you know he would yield a bit for his children's sake so if you said draw a cat he'd do you know an absolutely magnificent cat for you you know (laughs) Mm. and I was very interested in that and I was always obsessed with pictures of people um, I mean, what could be more interesting than us? It's mm. this attraction face to face is a sort of test of human solidarity, and I felt it very keenly when I was a child. And people gave me postcards of paintings from when I was little. So, you know, if, if a parent said, you know, there was a birthday party, and the mother said to my mother, "What do you want her to be given?" It, you know, it wouldn't be a Barbie doll; it would probably be some more postcards. And you know, we were thriftier in those days than yeah. we are now, perhaps. Um, so, I had a huge set. I still have an absolutely massive. Um, quantity of, of, you know, these little pictures were about the size of a vintage paperback. And um, and I look at them all the time and I think they extend my thinking and I still can't really approach anything without thinking of it as a picture first. I wonder sometimes if it's what cartoonists do um, because their ability to visualise the political crisis or the moment of Boris Johnson's new, yeah. you know, position running our country 
God help us, um, <laughs> seems to come to them in images too in, in, mm. immediately. And, you know, I sometimes think this must be how cartoonists think. And if I had mm. a talent, you know, maybe I could have been a cartoonist. <laughs> um, but you know, they they hear the news: Boris Johnson is going to be new, Boris Johnson is going to be new prime minister. So they instantly think of that in visual terms, and out comes their marvelous work. And um, I kind of envy that very much. Um, so so yes, I suppose my thinking in this book on Chapel Sands. Um, which is being published by Chateau. Um, I, I think that I've made it right at the very beginning. I picture, mm. literally, I suppose it's a picturing of the scene on this day in 1929 when my mother was taken off this beach. And anyone listening to this can picture this right now. So the beach is totally flat. There's about 20 miles of this beautiful flat beach. There are no rocks. There are no cliffs. There are no places to hide. Somebody takes a tiny child, three years old, she's sort of playing with a bucket and spade, and she's there one minute and then she's gone the next. Now, anybody thinking about that and wondering how that takes place, which is very much the storyline of this book, how did that happen? Um, and how is it that my mother, for example, is perfectly all right, has no memory of it? So there's a security, in a sense, in the beginning of the book, because it's obvious that my mother goes on to be married and give birth to children, and I am here, and she's there, and so on. So it worked out. It must have worked out somehow. But how did that happen? And I suppose I'm picturing it in words because I can't paint it. I have no talent for painting or, or drawing. I wish I did. But I'm picturing it in words. And... Everybody does that. So there's a puzzle, you know, it's a sort of, I don't know, it's a kind of Agatha Christie mystery. Mm -hmm. um, and we're reading it, you know, and we immediately start thinking, you know, where is the butler with the tray with the lethal poison? Um, where is the woman in the house at that point and so on? And I think everybody thinks of mystery in visual terms. Mm -hmm. So I think, I hope that though this isn't a book of pictures, it is a book of picturing and I feel that most people, uh, many people, will examine mysteries in their mind, revolve them in their mind in, in those terms too. Yeah, and I, I love the kind of allusions to mystery in, in the book as well because it, it takes place in this very small town English village which has this kind of like he said, she said kind of, oh, we, we don't speak about that kind of aspect to it. And you describe... Um, the, is it your mother's uncle's house as being like a Cluedo board <laughs> and like yes. having that kind of like that that very like round the corner kind of feel to it you use a lot of pictures um in the book but then you also kind of are very self-aware of that and analyze that you might be reading into the stuff that isn't there um this kind of reimagining invisible histories how how did you you obviously always kind of knew about your um mother having disappeared but then at what point did you think right I'm actually really going to dig for this I wanted my mother to write this book herself mm. and the point of the book actually is it's, it's like a sort of pier um, that I've constructed <laughs> upon which the end of the pier show is taking place and that's my mother's yeah. writing. Mm. And she wrote um, a memoir of her early life for me when I was 21 for my birthday present mm. um, which is which is absolutely the most wonderful thing. Yeah, it's and you I quote it wanted. in the book as well, don't yes. you? It's really nice to kind of hear yeah. her voice coming through. That's right, and she comes, mm. so she appears quite often, you'll get a, a marvellous sort of glimpse um, of a, a character in the village or a scene on the beach. So they are the actual truth of what she knew. But I tried many times to get her to go beyond this, and during the course of her life, waves of knowledge 
appeared that disturbed the previous waves of knowledge. So mm. she would discover she wasn't who she thought she was at the age of 13, and then again at the age of 18, and then things changed when she was 40. And then the hugest revelations occur when she was 60, um, and mm. she discovered she'd been kidnapped for the first time. And I think that my mother is 93 now, and uh, and I think that I always felt she was going to go further forward and analyse it more. But I realised when she was in her 80s that she never was going to because we would draw out these maps of how this book would be. And I would say, you know, well, let's write about the, you know, the green shoes in the episode with them. Or let us, you know, why don't you write about the, the Cluedo building, yeah. I suppose, <laughs> which is this marvellous old sort of Miss Marple house on the top of a cliff um, where her aunt and uncle live. Were they her aunt and uncle? Who knows, yeah. you know, and so on. And she would write these little parts, but she never took it any further forward and I suppose I needed her blessing to do to do this and I realized one day in 2016 we were talking about this and she's a very gracious woman my mother and I, I was I was needling away I guess in a sort of journalistic way you know and at some point she sat there with her beautiful blue eyes looking out into her garden and she said Laura I don't want to live in the past mm. you do this and so she gave me her blessing to to write it. She certainly wouldn't have written what I've written, um, partly because she is, of course, the main character in the book. Mm. And it's really a love letter to her and her wonderful uh, ability to change herself and transform herself and get out of these very constrained and really imprisoning circumstances in this tiny village that you spoke of. What do you think about um, our... our how looking back on these kind of like smaller village histories um says for the kind of our present day way of living did you find anything um kind of interrogating those people who were around at that time um anything that's changed over the years or do you think that um this kind of human nature to hide things and and kind of um be in this kind of small village mentality has has is something that is, is just very much human nature or something we can recognize today well, when I started writing, um, I'd already done, you know, a lot of research years and years ago with my mother when we went back to this village um, to try to find out what really was the story and who was she really. Mm. And so this was in the 80s, the late 80s, and nobody told us anything. They were absolutely <laughs> like characters in a, a play. They They wouldn't yield up anything, even though all of the people who were really involved in this story were long since dead, mm. but they were going to keep those secrets forever and ever, and they were going to keep this communal collective silence. And um, the book is very much a campaign against collective silence because mm. um, if my mother had known even the smallest details, she would have known who she was, and she would have met her mother. Yeah. I'm not giving too much away because I think you, in the beginning yeah, of the book, so you, do, you discover mm. that she's adopted and, mm. and so on. But she would have had... The, there are near misses all the time. There are people mm. living in tiny villages passing each other. They've, one of the kind of motifs of the book, I suppose, is this bread fan. Imagine tiny, tiny hamlet. There are about 400 souls living there by the sea and the bread is delivered, as it was in those days, either by a bicycle or by a van. And she was a little bit further out of the village and in her case it was a van. Four little tiny Victorian terraced houses um, and this van comes and it stops at, you know, one, three and four, but not at two. Why not? And she always wondered and now I know and now the reader will find out mm -hmm. too. And I, I can't believe that now 
this would really happen. I have 14-year-old twins and I think there's practically nothing they don't know about their friends' lives and their <laughs> friends' parents' lives and so on. Mm. They have the instant uh, access of the internet and the phone and, and so forth. And a crucial, crucial thing in this book, really signal turning point in the book for my mother, but especially for me, for reasons that you know anyone reading it will discover, um, was to see herself photographed. Mm. Now, when I wrote my first book, which is about self-portraits, which is about ten, ten years ago, um, I remember writing at the beginning of the book that we do not know what we look like and this gift is not ours. You know, Robert Burns, the gift to see ourselves as others see us, was not, in my sense, quite the situation we lived in. We still didn't really know. But actually, no, I don't think that's true at all anymore. Um, I think I do know what I look like because... You know, they photograph their family all day long. There's no moment that isn't snapped. And I think the aggregate of thousands of photographs of yourself, you start to realise what you do really mm. look like. You know, we, we can film each other all the time on our iPhones. My mother didn't know what she looked like, and there is a tremendous revelation for her in her life when she was sent to a little photographic studio in Skegness in 1941. And you know, she sits for the camera and the photographer takes the snap on a great old camera and then it's sent back to her village and she opens the envelope and she sees what she has not realised before because it's the first time she really sees herself. So I think your question about what, what could be now and what uh, what could have been then, I don't think it's necessarily possible. However, it is in human nature to keep secrets. Um, we don't want to give of ourselves anybody listening to this has some secret um, there must be some part of ourselves that we want to keep private and it might only be the sorts that are going in on in your head which you're keeping s silently inside the chamber of your mind in order not to hurt someone for example mm. and I think in the case of this story I feel um, wrongly but I would feel that these villagers kept this village secret in order for people not to be hurt Mm -hmm. and that's how the damage occurred but I think their instincts were rather noble probably I've turned over and over who were they trying to save in this story and I think that the, they were probably trying to save my mother's adopted mother who was a beautiful gentle Edwardian woman in long skirts basically mm -hmm. who I knew um, in her very old age called Vida and she was she was on the parish committee in the tiny little village church and she was the one who ran the women's institute in that village and she was the person who you know gathered up all the other women to knit socks for the troops in the second world war some of these troops were coming up the beaches you know these she was a, a, a late what we a phrase we never use now she was ladylike and she was a lady and i think probably the village were really trying to protect her above all yeah that makes sense um how you know that this this bearing on um you know, your life and, and maybe how you see yourself. This, do you think that um, our kind of immediate um, uh, ability to see our physical selves has, has affected how we see our, ourselves, you know, personally and internally? Uh, and do you think that has affected how, how you write? Because obviously you've grown up in a different generation where you do see more of yourself. And, and, and um, yeah, I, I wonder what you think about um, the way we approach art and how we, you know, either with words or, or with, a, with a paintbrush draw ourselves. Do you think it's it's different? 
I wrote a book before this one, which was published by Vintage, mm-hmm. um, which was about a bookseller, Victorian bookseller, who thought he'd found a painting by Velasquez. And that book was a campaigning book. I just had two things I wanted to do in it. I wanted people to look at the paintings of Velasquez, so it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity given me by bu- publishers to, to look in great detail up at these paintings. And I wanted people to get an easy jet flight to the Prado in, in Madrid straight away. And they did, and I'm absolutely jubilant. That was, that was um, my aim, and in that respect, it did succeed, because lots of people went to see these great paintings. And I wanted people to know that I thought that this poor Victorian bookseller was terribly traduced, because it was, it was a class war book, in a sense, because you know the establishment came down on him. How could he possibly know anything about Velasquez? So I, I had a motive there. And I think of books, I don't know how fiction writers feel about books, but I think of non-fiction, particularly memoir, um, in the current era, which has transformed unutterably since I was a kid. Um, I think of them as active, and I think of what I write as campaigning. So in the case of my book about my mother, I have two ambitions. One is to to, to talk about her, to portray her, to depict her, because she is my beloved mother. And she has led a sequestered, quiet and very modest life. And I should think that probably that's the case for almost anybody listening to this programme, unless their mother happens to be a, you know, Judy Dench or the Queen or something. Most of our mothers are these quiet heroines and they're known to us. And I wanted to broadcast all of her remarkable qualities, everything about her to the world. So I got this opportunity. And it's just like the last book insofar as there is a plot with mysteries and twists and so on. But it's a way, and and I would say it's a way of carrying things I want to say about my mother. It's also a way of talking about a very obvious thing, which is that all stories are true. Great phrase, all stories are true. This book follows the stories of four people. And for my mother, they were tyrants, or they were very difficult, or they were very unknown, or they were in some way um, cruel. And I wanted to see whether they really were, and why these people did the things they did, you know, 90 years ago. Why they felt they wanted to do this rather than that. Why they treated her the way they did. And, And I think every story in the book is turned and turned so that one sees the, the character differently. Um, and I found out more things, and I learned things about my grandfather, who was mm. described as a total tyrant to me when I was, was growing up. And I thought of him as a kind of classic pantomime villain. Um, not by the end of the book, he's yeah. not. And I suppose if there is a little bit of a campaign in this book, it's, it's to look at people and images more closely. And so there's a lot in the book about looking at our family albums um, and seeing who's in the picture, who isn't in the picture, who's taking the picture. What more evidence is there that one can deduce about a family from its photograph albums? Again, something that I think is probably very unlikely to happen in the future now that we have 50 mm. billion you know, photographs yeah. that are never downloaded and never put into an album. Yeah. You can turn the pages of an album and see a narrative develop in that way that you can't so easily, I think, when flicking through you know, hundreds mm. and hundreds of images on screen. Um, you so made a, a nice comment in the book about um, um, how few pictures there were in a, in a family album you found because only the best ones were picked and that yes. told you something else as well, sorry. No, you, you're right mm-hmm. and, and of course the crucial thing was that the, the, in this case, in my mother's case, this classic, you know, 
basically it's an Edwardian black album with snaps in gold, you know, across one corner. And I should, you know, it's a very um, standard photograph album, black pages, thick black pages. And by my calculation, you could have fitted quite a lot of pictures, um, taken on a box brownie, tiny little images into this thing. There were none of my mother before the age of three, and there were none of her after the age I calculate of 13. And even when I was growing up, I thought this was strange, and half the book is empty. Mm. And I thought perhaps it was to do with money, you know, his... Her, her father was a travelling soap salesman and he had no money and why why would he have had the amount of money that it took to develop film? So like anybody who's following their ancestors' story, the family's history and so on, you know, you go and discover really how much they cost. Well, actually, he could afford it. You find out what his salary was. You find out how much it cost him to buy a loaf of bread. You know, you look yeah, at all these lovely things. <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, the joy yeah. of it, of course, is, you know... I imagine it's universal. I don't know anyone who isn't thrilled to discover a photograph or a mm. detail about you know somebody's address or what they wore or whatever. And I think in the case of the photographs, I did conclusively prove to myself that he had the money to have taken more. And so at that point, he stopped. This man stopped taking photographs of his adopted daughter. Why? And... My mother had never talked about it, and even now, I think, would just gently pass a hand over it and say, you know, mm. that, don't let's think about that. But I did find out why, and I wanted to know why, and I wanted to know if it was because he was so terrible or whether there was another story. Mm. So I think it's totally universal. Um, I haven't met anybody in the time of writing this book or since it's been published who doesn't know someone whose um, sister actually was their mother or whose uncle was their mother's boyfriend or whose grandfather wasn't their grandfather you know everybody knows somebody who had some deep secret in their family and there is an identity crisis when they when they discover that their relatives weren't their relatives or were their relatives either way and so I think it's um progressed the book has progressed in just the same way it would with anybody doing their own family research the difference for me I guess is that I think of things in terms of pictures and art Mm -hmm. so that's the prism through which I'm examining this story. Definitely, which leads on to my next question, actually, which is, is do you think there are any um, uh, writers that you've, you've read or, or potentially for you, I guess, paintings that you, that you love that have influenced your work? And, and what are those? Uh, well, there's several in the book. Yeah. And um, the two really crucial ones, I think, in the book um, are the painting by Bruegel called landscape with the fall of Icarus which is this tremendous painting from hundreds of years ago of the sea far and and beyond it far in the distance the sun and the plowman at the front plowing away and all of these things are going on and a tiny tiny figure Icarus his wings melted Mm. falls from his hubris down into the sea way down below and most people don't even know that he's there or don't spot the tiny little legs going into the water. And uh, this is the subject of many great poems and much writing, and it's, a, I think, the great human masterpiece, a great narrative of what life is like. The peasant doesn't see the sea and the life goes on and, and so on. And, um, and because it's very much a village scene to me, it's, it's, a, it's a rural landscape with the sea in it, um, I've always thought of this story in that way, which is that my this little tragedy because I do think it is a tragedy, with a happy ending, but it is a tragedy. This little thing is going on in one corner of the beach, as it were, and somehow no one's noticing. How is it possible that this kid's taken, this little child has taken off the beach like that and nobody notices? Well, that 
can't be quite what happened, can it? There must be more to it. So, mm. And I see the, the Bruegel's the theme all the way through the book because there are so many aspects of the way that I look, of, I look at life that I suppose I see in that particular painting. And the other image that, for me, was very crucial to this story was a painting by Degas. It's a huge painting, nearly life-size, um, called the Bellelli family, and it's in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. And it shows a fantastic scene of marital strife. So on the uh, left-hand side of the painting is a woman dressed in black standing up, um, very prim and proper and so on. She's actually Degas' own aunt, so he really did know the story that he was painting. Um, she's got one child uh, hugged close to her, also standing upright in this very pristine pinafore. And this child has no idea that things are really going to fall apart all around her. And she's sort of beaming at the camera, effectively, looking back at Dega. Um, the aunt is not looking at Dega, she's looking askance and in an exceedingly disapproving way, obviously feeling a very great deal of um, resentment of her husband, who is sitting in a chair, more or less, with his back entirely turned to us on the other side of the room. So he's the sort of figure who's been kind of sent to his den, or mm. he's he's exited the main scene, but he's still there on the edges. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And right in the middle is this girl, the, the, the second daughter, is sitting on a chair, and her body and her face and her clothes and everything she knows, things are going to tip slightly, and there's a little dog, family pet, exiting the picture as fast as it can and most people looking at the scene are kind of with that dog you know they don't know whatever is going to kick off now is going to be terrible and absolutely it was a painting of complete marital breakdown this man was very cruel to his wife um, it was a terrible story the family were deeply involved in the tragedies of it and so on and that painting fascinates anyone who's seeing it because it's a narrative it's basically a novel in paint um, everybody who sees that museum they will say stops to work out what's going wrong <laughs> because it is a painting of everything going wrong um, and I was fascinated by it because there's a photograph of my grandparents taken by my mother and the scene is very similar, and I've often wondered whether my grandfather's also trying to get out of the picture, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to be in this family, how does he feel? And the painting by Degas helps me understand the photograph taken by my mother. Yeah. So art, pictures, paintings make me look at things differently, and that's one way that they do, and I think all paintings, I think that paintings can have that effect on us um, and make us see our own lives very differently um, and I love them for it thank you so much for listening to the vintage podcast uh, I really hope you pick up a copy of On Chapel Sands it's an incredible really unusual uh, book and I think you'll really enjoy it do come and follow us on Twitter and Instagram we are at vintage books everywhere leave us a review if you enjoyed this episode and or tell a friend the old-fashioned five-star review is just literally telling a friend do let us know what you're reading we're always really excited to hear um, new recommendations and things that people have picked up uh, we know you're all amazing readers so we get great recommendations from you as much as you get them from us thank you for listening and until next time